Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Paul. Uh, like he said, it's a joy to be with you, to be opening the word, to preach God's word to you. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Um, like Austin said, so glad uh, to see so many moms in here. Um, this is our second Mother's Day with my wife being a mom. And so it's been such a neat thing to watch her mom, if you can use that as a verb, and then grow as a mom. Um, and I do know, um, I say that, uh, I say happy, mother, happy Mother's Day also knowing that there's probably in a room this size a number of you for whom Mother's Day is a hard day. Um, and I want you to know that you're not alone, um, that, that I'm very aware of that, that we are aware of that. Um, uh, and so uh, if that describes you, I, I pray that God would comfort you today um, by his spirit uh, uh, so that you might experience joy and restoration even through, uh, through whatever it is that you're going through. Uh, but yes, today um, I'm preaching the second sermon in our series on revival. As Taylor said last week, uh, really, revival is something uh, that every Christian lives life hoping for. Revival uh, literally is a word that means kind of re-lifing, um, bringing back to life. Uh, and revival, to be clear, we're not throwing a sojourn revival. That's not what we're doing um, here over this five-week series. What we're doing is we're opening God's word and asking God to, to really teach us what it means to, to, to hoist the sails, so to speak, to prepare ourselves for him to blow the wind of revival so that we can be in the middle of what God's doing uh, when, by his grace, he does that. Revival is something that God brings. Um, when revival comes, we see all kinds of things happen. Sleepy Christians wake up. Uh, nominal Christians are converted uh, and come to faith in Jesus. Particularly hard to reach people are radically converted uh, to faith in Christ. Um, revival does all kinds of things, and we're asking God that he would begin with us, and that he would teach us how to depend on him, and that he would pour out his spirit, uh, be present with us, um, and bring revival in our midst into our city. Last week, Taylor preached on really prayer and dependence on God. He talked about what revival is um, out of 1 Samuel 2. And I'll say, um, it would have been, it might have been nice to, to swap last week's text with this week's text. It's Mother's Day. Uh, talking about 1 Samuel 2, which is a prayer, Hannah's prayer uh, for her son would have been appropriate to do on Mother's Day, but we'll call that a missed opportunity. Um, but, uh, but this week, um, I'm talking with you about revival uh, and personal purity out of Psalm 51. And this word, this, this psalm is, is appropriate for any day of the week, any Sunday of the year. Uh, if I were to give a title for this sermon, it would be this. There is no revival without the purity of God's church. Therefore, there's no revival without repentance. You see, the purity of church is essential for revival. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, uh, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one inside the church, no one outside the church will see the Lord if we are not striving for holiness, if we're not striving for purity. And how do we do this? How do we attain uh, and maintain purity? Uh, it's, it's nothing else but through repentance, through looking deeply at our sin uh, in a way that throws us to our knees, crying for God's mercy and help and watching as God brings restoration and joy, working salvation in us so that we turn from our sin and towards him in faith. There is no revival, there is no new life without repentance. Uh, John Miller uh, was a pastor, uh, and he wrote this book in the 1970s called Repentance in 20th Century Man. Um, uh, he was convinced in the 1970s uh, that there was a growing problem in the American church of impenitence, uh, of lack of repentance. Um, and so he wrote this little book as an attempt to address the problem, and I want to read 
just a part uh, of the note to the reader that he gave at the beginning, uh, because his words ring true, I think, especially, uh, possibly even more so today. He said this. He said, I've written this book to express a twofold concern for God's people today. First, many who call Jesus their Savior are loaded down with pretense and evasion and have no heart for confessing and forsaking their ways as God commands them. Secondly, many others have an awareness of their guilt, but they do not know how to go to Christ and rid themselves of their dark blots. In their secret heart, God is viewed as an unsympathetic tyrant, not as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From my good friend Kifa Simpangi, I've heard about the working out of these principles, this, talking about the principles in this book. I've heard about the working out of these principles in Uganda, where a revival which began in 1938 has continued up until the mid-70s. Kifa reports that the believers there have an unusual honesty in confessing sins, and as a consequence, the whole church has been filled with great joy. In practice, this means that a grim-faced brother may be stopped on the street and asked by his fellow Christian, my brother, Have you confessed your sins today? Have you seen the cross of Christ today? According to Kepha, believers are expected to see the cross when they confess their sins and leave their burdens there. My desire is the same for you who read this book. Uh, He then goes on to write eight of, I think, the greatest chapters that I've read um, outside of the Bible on the topic of confession and repentance. And as Kepha, his friend, spoke of in Uganda, what accompanied that revival was an unusual honesty in confessing sins. And as a consequence, the whole church had been filled not with great self-loathing and self-deprecation, but with great joy. He didn't refer to great strategy and vision. He didn't refer to how evangelistic they were. He didn't refer to how good they were at convincing people to become Christians. He referred to their great joy, which came as a result of their unusual honesty in confessing their sins. They confessed their sins to one another. When someone was slow to speak up, uh, their friends would approach them not saying, hey, how are you? What's wrong? They would say, have you confessed your sins today? Have you seen the cross of Christ today? And here's the thing. If I'm honest, I, I don't really know how to do this well. Um, and I think that we, together, don't really know how to do this well as Americans and, and certainly at Sojourn. While some of you might know how to, how to do this well individually, uh, I, I don't think we know really how to do this well as a community, and this can't be so. Um, It can't remain this way. If we want to see a movement of God in our midst, if we want to see revival breaking forth from us and seeing sinners come to know God, then we must be reminded of this wonderful grace of repentance. As Thomas Watson, who's a 17th century preacher, wrote in a simple statement, how is repentance wrought? Partly by the word and by the spirit. If we're pursuing repentance, we need God's word and we need God's presence by the Holy Spirit. Today we're in Psalm 51, and I think that by God's grace we'll see that Psalm 51 is a wide open window into God's heart for repentance. The flow of my sermon is going to come in three main points. Uh, First, we're going to look at a picture of repentance from Psalm 51. Second, we're going to look at why we don't do it. And third, we're going to fix our eyes on the Christ of our confession. So let me begin with point one, a picture of true repentance. Uh, Psalm 51 For a little bit of context, let me read the prescript. It says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. The author of Psalm 51 uh, is King David, who reigned in Israel from 1010 to 970 BC, so about 3,000 years ago. It's one of seven 
uh, what are called penitential psalms, uh, which means that this is a psalm of confession and repentance. We're also given the event that sparked the writing of this penitential psalm. David wrote this psalm after Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Uh, the story, the backstory is told in the book of 2 Samuel. Let me give you a little bit of, of what happened. David, uh, sitting in his residence in Jerusalem, he's the king of Jerusalem, his army was at war, um, and he spied out the window this beautiful woman who was bathing, and he beckoned her to him. Uh, he slept with her. She was the wife of one of his military generals, and then he had uh, arranged it so that his mini- uh, this military general, um, her husband, would be killed in battle. Um, so it's a pretty bad situation. And when David, confronts, uh, when David is confronted by Nathan with the implications of what he's done, his immediate response is, I've sinned against the Lord, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. And it's after Nathan confronts him that he begins to realize what he's done, which results in his writing, Psalm 51, which gives us, I think, one of the most beautiful uh, kind of thorough pictures of true repentance in all of the Bible. And I want to look at Psalm 51, at what it tells us about repentance, divided into three main parts. Verses 1 through 4, um, we see David's self-indictment. Verses 5 and 6 are something of a transition. Uh, and then verses 7 through 19, we see David pleading with God for renewal and restoration. I'll spend a little bit more time in the first section, first of those sections, um, as we look at what we can see about repentance. So first, let's look at David's self-indictment in verses 1 through 4. We see a few things. First thing we see is that true repentance is desperate but hopeful. Uh, In the first verse, from the first two words, we know that we're reading the words of a man who knows God. Have mercy on me, O God. David doesn't open with an attempt to excuse himself. He doesn't open trying to explain himself. He opens with a desperate cry for mercy. And the rest of this verse is just as important. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, David's desperation wasn't despairing. His desperation was hopeful. He's making this desperate appeal for mercy out of his trust in the character of God, in God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. And this is crucial. Repentance is not bowing your head with fingers crossed, wondering what God is going to do when you confess. To the one who comes with honest confession, God is always merciful. And this is something unique to God. Right? There's no human relationship uh, for which this is true. Right? Every time you confess to another person, there's always the question uh, when you apologize, will they accept my apology? Right? How angry will he or she be? When you get pulled over, um, will I get a warning or a ticket? Or will I get something worse? When I wrong my wife, right, will this be a big deal or will it be a huge deal? <laughs> when, you <were> growing, <laughs> yeah. when you were growing up, I think those are the two options. I think that uh, when you were growing up and you admitted to doing something wrong to your parents or your teacher, you always wonder what's coming. Uh, what's the punishment that I'm going to receive? With God, however, this is not so. God is steadfast in his love and he is abundantly merciful. He has never not been and he always will be. From the very first verse, we see that repentance is both desperate and hopeful. Second thing we see is that true repentance requires specific confession. Look at uh, how David describes why he's asking for mercy, verses 2 and 3. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Rather than simply leaving this at some general statement of sinfulness, 
David refers to specific transgressions that come to mind, and he explains that they are ever before him. What he's not doing is just repeating some general phrase over and over again in his mind. I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. No, he uses the word transgressions, which indicates actual actions. And it's a plural, indicating that he's thinking of more than one action that he has committed in the past that has been offensive to God. And this, too, is crucial. To quote Thomas Watson, again, I'll quote him a number of times today, a wicked man acknowledges that he is a sinner in general. He confesses sin by wholesale. A wicked man says, Lord, I've sinned, but doesn't know what the sin is. Whereas a true convert acknowledges his particular sins. Think about going to the doctor. If you go into the doctor and you're not feeling well, and you walk in and you tell the doctor just that, I'm not feeling very well. Well, what's wrong? I don't know, I'm just not feeling very well. Then you'll get general care because you just gave him the general statement. He'll probably tell you to sleep more, give you some Advil, um, maybe eat a full meal. If you're specific, however, you'll get specific treatment, right? If you're sick, you want to be as, you want to show the doctor everything. You want them to do all the scans they can do to find out exactly what's going wrong so that you can receive specific care. It's very similar to how we are with God, right? Confession must be specific. It's only when we confess our sins that we avail ourselves of the mercy that God promises for those sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we, could, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a, con- that's a conditional statement. God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. True repentance requires specific confession. Third thing here is that true repentance is voluntary. If you remember, David was actually called out before he admitted to his sin. Right? The prophet Nathan had confronted him, at which point David responds, I'm a sinner, I've sinned against God. And just after that, Nathan's immediate response to David is really a word of encouragement. Take heart. Your sins uh, have been put away. You shall not die. And then Nathan leaves. So David could have just moved on with his life, trying to, to, you know, forget what happened, trying to be better in the future. But that's not what he does. He's grieved. David's sin is ever before him. And it needs to be dealt with. So he hits his knees in true repentance. No one is holding him to this task. Nathan has left. It was David's knowledge of God and of his own need uh, that caused him to voluntarily enter into this time of confession and repentance, which is where we get Psalm 51. Remember, this is a gracious invitation that we have. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 31 says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. God's invitation for us is to judge our own hearts. And when we see what what is really true about ourselves, bring that to him and experience mercy. When we confess, would it have been better for David to confess before Nathan had confronted him? Absolutely. Uh, in, the story, in the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, which is one that you might be familiar with, uh, where this son kind of demands an early inheritance from his father. He goes and squanders all of his money and then is convicted of his sin, comes back to his father. And as he sees his father, uh, as he's walking over to his father, he immediately falls and says, Father, I've sinned. All right, the story of the prodigal son He charged himself with sin even before his father could charge him. And his father immediately showed mercy. Jesus told that story in part to to show the kind of heart he's looking for, the kind of heart to which he wants to extend mercy. So rather than waiting to get caught, in other words, this is like turning yourself in for a speeding ticket, right? This is like turning yourself into your boss for getting getting to work late three days in a row. This is like approaching someone you've lied to before they discover that you've actually lied to them. Uh, when I was in high school, 
my friends and I, I was driving with a couple of friends uh, up to see another friend perform in a play, and we were very late. And I was driving like, a, like any 17-year-old uh, under the speed limit at 110 miles an hour. And I drove as literally 110 miles an hour. I, I flew past a cop car, uh, a cruiser that was, that was driving down the right lane. Um, and he was driving, so he didn't clock me on his radar, but I pulled over. Sure enough, he pulls in behind me, pulls me out of the car and says, son, you must have been doing 90. So in my mind, I thought, okay, I was doing 110. Yes, sir, I was doing 90. That's better than 110. Um, that, that was concession, uh, not confession. Um, let's, not be, <laughs> let's not be this kind of people. Let's be quick to confess. And in so doing, let's display for one another uh, and for our neighbors uh, our trust in God, who we actually believe is merciful and gracious to receive our confession and show us mercy. And even when we fail to do this and we're rebuked in our sin like David, uh, let's count it grace that what was once in darkness has been brought to light and be quick to repent, right? Doing so not under compulsion, but voluntarily. The last thing in this kind of first section is this. We see that true repentance acknowledges God as the offended party. So David turns to God, and rather than saying, I sinned God against Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, which would have made sense for him to confess those things. Rather than saying that, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David turns to God and says, Lord, this sin is ultimately against you. It's clear throughout the Bible that God created us to live lives uh, entirely for him and that every sin is the choice of something over God, whether it be our opinions whether it be our own desires for something else, whatever it is, every single sin breaks faith with God, essentially committing adultery with God, against God. In the case of every sin, therefore, even when we can clearly link to an affected party around us, even when we clearly have sinned against someone else, we know that the worst effect of every sin is a fractured relationship with God. And this doesn't negate the fact that, that Uriah and Bathsheba experienced direct pain because of David's sin. Uriah didn't just experience pain, he was killed because of David's sin. Um, it doesn't negate the fact that it's important to make restitution when we sin against others. Matthew 5 uh, makes this clear. You don't go to the person you stole from and say, I've repented without apologizing and giving them back what you stole from them. What David is saying here doesn't negate the necessity of restitution, but what is in David's mind is the most grave situation in which he finds himself. He has sinned against the God of the universe, and the greatest injury that he has inflicted is against the relationship that he has with God. So in order to truly repent, we must acknowledge God as the utmost offended party, identifying the most important thing that must be repaired, our relationship with God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we see in these first few verses of Psalm 51 uh, that true repentance begins with desperate hopeful, specific, and voluntary confession. And it always acknowledges God as the offended party. Verses five and six are sort of a transition in David's prayer. And these two verses give us, I think, two simple points. First, we must must reach the bottom. True repentance leads us to the realization that what is being confessed is not an anomaly. There is a deep sickness within us. We're not momentarily outside of our right minds when we sin, only to lapse back into our right mind when we come to our senses. No, David says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You could also uh, translate this first line, Behold, in guilt I was born. David's saying, 
that from the moment he was born, he was born into a life of sin. The fountain itself is polluted. We're so often quick uh, to label sins as mistakes, right, or moments of weakness, uh, or sometimes we point the finger at someone else or point the finger at Satan, blaming people for our sins. But that's not what true repentance looks like. As Thomas Watson said, it is the depravity of our nature that needs dealing with, not our mistakes. In other words, when I repent, I face, I face the harsh reality that what I'm dealing with is not an anomaly, um, as much as I'd like to convince myself of that. Um, I'm dealing with the real me. I'm dealing with the real Paul, right? I'm not a good person who sometimes does bad things. I'm a bad person who sometimes does okay things. At my very root, I am a polluted fountain. I am a sinner. True repentance must lead us to the very bottom. But the second thing that we see uh, in these middle verses is that while we must reach the bottom, we must not stay there. Verse 6 might seem a bit random. In the middle of confessing his sin, David observes God's delight in truth and the fact that God teaches him wisdom. It might seem random, but it's not. What David is doing is he's pausing to give the credit for his knowledge to God. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart, O God. He pauses to reflect upon how everything that he said up to this point, everything that he's realized and confessed is because God taught it to him. Without God's grace, David would not have been able to see himself for who he truly was. And he wouldn't be able to see God for who he truly is. And this is good news. The reality of our sin hurts. Confession is always painful. But realizing our sin for what it is, rather than being punishment from God, is an incredible grace from God. God delights in truth, and by his grace, he teaches us that truth. David pauses to remember this, and it's as if he remembers his hope from verse 1, because from here on out, he starts asking God to do things for him. The third part of the psalm, uh, verses 7 through 19, um, and these are, these are my divisions of Psalm 51, just for the sake of what we're doing this morning. Um, there's a lot here that I won't uh, cover, but for our purposes, I want to make just two key observations that I think this last section teaches us about true repentance. These, these, these two things are, are this. First, true repentance needs God to work. True repentance needs God to work. Verse 7 talks about cleanness and washing. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. These are religious terms that, re- that, that are referring to the dirtiness, to, to uncleanness of the soul caused by our sin, which makes us unacceptable in God's sight. And because we have sinned against God, only God can forgive us. Only God can cleanse us uh, and declare us acceptable before him. And because David realizes this, Uh, that this cleansing, this righting of wrongs cannot come from within. It must come from without. Because David realizes this, he begins to plead with God. God, change me. God, fix me. God, create in me a clean heart. God, restore me. I can't do this, so you must. That's why every single one of the verbs, uh, the active verbs in verses 7 through 12, uh, have God as their subject, which means God is the actor um, in verses 7 through 12. Uh, Purge me with hyssop, hyssop. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Cast me not. Restore to me. Uphold me. David is asking God to work because David knows that he can't do it without God's help. It's only after, and, and, and you know, so often 
uh, we think repentance is simply saying, I'm sorry, God, I'll try not to do this again. Right? Repentance is not self-encouragement. Repentance is not an appeal to the good within you so that you do better next time. No. So often we say, I'm sorry, God, I'll try not to do this again. We might even say, God, please help me not to do this again. But if the focus is on me, then we're missing the point of true repentance. When in this psalm does David talk about doing something? When does David promise to do something for God? It's only after he receives cleansing, only after he receives a clean heart, renewed spirit, restored joy, only then does David say in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then sinners will return to you. It's only when David is delivered from his blood guiltiness, verse 14, which is a specific reference to the blood of Uriah, the man he had killed. Only when David is delivered from this blood guiltiness uh, will he be able to sing aloud of God's righteousness. Only then will his mouth be able to declare God's praise. And that brings me to the last thing that I want to point out about this picture of repentance. True repentance leads to right living. True repentance leads to right living. While part of the process of repentance is forgiveness for particular sins, the purpose of repentance is much more than simply forgiveness of particular sins. You don't simply repent so that you can be forgiven and go to heaven. You repent so that God can put to death the old you And bring to life the new, so that with a new heart, verse 10, with restored joy, verse 12, you can be put to good service in his kingdom. Think about what happened to Isaiah. Taylor preached on this a couple of weeks ago. When Isaiah sees God, he falls on his face, says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God comes and touches his lips with a coal, proclaiming forgiveness. And immediately, what happens right after that? God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah immediately says, choose me. Pick me. I will go. Right? David, what does David say here? The first thing that David promises to do is verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This sounds a whole lot like revival, doesn't it? David doesn't simply say, then I will teach transgressors not to commit adultery with women and then have their husbands killed. Right? He says, I will teach transgressors your ways. The goal of repentance is restoration that leads to right living so that you can lead others towards God in general. You don't just leave the particular sin you've committed. You leave all sins so that you can be a faithful servant of God in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is the foundation of a revival. Here in verse 13, we will be restored, upheld with a willing spirit, which God is willing to give. Right? That's revival for us. And we will lead sinners to the Lord. That is revival breaking out through us. This is the goal of repentance. That is why we are in Psalm 51. This is what we've been given to do. Receive and share the grace of confession and repentance. Because you see, when we experience the joy of deliverance, the joy of forgiveness, we commit our lives to teaching others the ways of God, bringing sinners to him and singing aloud of his righteousness. Why then? Why then don't we do it? Point two. We have been given such a great gift in being given this opportunity to confess our sins to God and receive mercy. This is a story, the story of forgiveness. God's mercy for humanity is a story, Peter says, into which angels long to look because they never had the chance to repent. What a gift we've been given in repentance. Why don't we do it? Uh, There are many reasons. I want to give just two that I believe are particularly pertinent uh, to us. First, Um, Our cultural moment tells us that we don't need to. 
We don't need to repent. We're in the midst of something, uh, something of a self-esteem movement. Um, we think that we're awesome. Uh, 1950s, a uh, psychologist named Carl Rogers published a paper uh, that said the problem with our young people um, is not that they love each other too much, but that they don't love each other or they don't love themselves enough. We have to teach them self-love and self-esteem. That was in the 1950s, and since then, it caught on like wildfire. Every generation bought into that more and more since then. In 1950, Gallup asked high school seniors, do you think you're a very important person? 12% of high school seniors in 1950 said, yes, I think I'm a very important person. In 2005, it was 80%. Math scores, we are now 36th in the world in math performance, and we are number one at thinking that we are good at math, right? Ironically, the lowest scores are the South Koreans who think they're the worst at math when actually they're the best at math. In 1962, there were zero articles about self-esteem in education journals. In 1992, 30 years later, there were 2,500 per year. Psychologists give what they call the narcissism test to people, where they give statements and say, does this apply to you? Um, statements like, I like to be the center of attention. I usually show off if I get the chance. I find it easy to manipulate people. Someone should write a biography about me, right? In the last two decades, there has been a 30% increase in the American average on the narcissism test. The cultural air that we breathe tells us that we are special and significant, that we are better than everyone else, that while we make mistakes sometimes, everyone does, and we're not that bad, right? And this sounds great to us. Right? According to the Bible, it plays right along with the human condition. We're self-centered, self-promoters, and self-preservers. We make excuses rather than facing the consequences. We speed until we get caught, and then we keep speeding because it's not that big of a deal. Right? We think everyone makes mistakes, and while there's some people who are really bad who probably need something like repentance, I certainly don't because right? I'm pretty good. First thing, first reason we don't repent is because we don't need, think we need to. Second thing is that we think, the second reason we don't repent is really that, that we think that we do repent. And this is true. If, you, if you're a Christian in here, this is, this is probably what's, what's applicable to us. We think that we do, but what we're actually doing is counterfeit repentance. Right? Like a Ponzi scheme makes people think that they're investing in a real investment opportunity. Counterfeit repentance uh, promises true repentance, but it is not. And I want to camp out on this for just a minute. Uh, Watson, uh, who I've quoted several times today, gives three main genres of counterfeit repentance. The first is what he calls legal terror, right? uh, fear of consequences. This is when we resolve not to do something again for fear of getting caught or for fear of punishment. Here's the thing. There may be fear of consequences, but with no heart change. If you're simply fixing your eyes on the consequences that you might face, then that's not repentance. That's just prudent self-preservation. Right, a good question to ask yourself is this. Why am I not giving in to this temptation? Right, why am I not gossiping? Is it because I'm with the wrong group of friends? Or is it because it's an offense against God? Why am I not looking at pornography? Is it because I might get caught? Is it because my wife might get hurt by it? Or is it because it's an offense against God? Why am I not getting drunk? Why am I not shoplifting? The list goes on. Being motivated by legal terror, by fear of consequences to yourself and consequences to others, is not true repentance. Right? Only when we realize that our sins are against God at their uttermost reality, will we truly repent, as David did when he said, against you, you only, have I sinned 
The second genre of counterfeit repentance is what Watson calls resolution against sin, right? Uh, For the same reason that New Year's resolutions and diets tend to fail, simply our resolution not to sin might work for a moment, uh, but it will inevitably fail. We tend to say anything, uh, we, we tend to say anything when we feel sorry for something, right? By far, the majority of the promises I've ever made have been in the context of apologies. But once the moment has passed, right, without something changing internally, we'll go back to our old ways. As Watson said, when on one's sickbed, a person will make all kinds of commitments. Once made well, however, he is as bad as ever. He shows his, heart, his old heart in a new temptation. Trust not to a passionate resolution. It is raised in a storm, and it will die in calm. You will never conquer your sin because of the strength of your resolve. It is only with a new heart. It is only with the upholding hand of God's spirit that we will have the strength to turn from our sin and towards God. The third uh, and last genre of counterfeit repentance is perhaps the easiest mistake to make. And it's one that I personally have been really wrestling with this week. Watson calls it the leaving of many sinful ways. This is when you celebrate leaving some sins, but other sins remain. Maybe it's leaving an old sin in order to get to a new sin. Maybe it's leaving a bigger sin uh, for something that we think is a smaller sin. Here's the thing. Uh, It's a great thing to leave sin behind. But it's possible to part with sin without true repentance, without experiencing true restoration. In Watson's words, sin may be exchanged and the heart remain unchanged. Sometimes we leave a particular sin because we found a better way to get what we want. Or sometimes we we leave it because our tastes have changed or because we're moving into a new season of life, like graduating college or becoming parents. And so we just don't do that stuff anymore. Regardless, simply leaving a sinful way is not necessarily evidence of true repentance. Without heart transformation wrought by God out of brokenness, leaving one sin is no more than making room for many others. Listen, it's, it's really quite simple what's wrong with these three things. You might have noticed that in each of these three things, the solution's found within yourself, right? With legal terror, the solution for sin, uh, the answer for sin is self, uh, self-preservation. With resolution against sin, the answer for sin is self-reliance. With leaving of many sinful ways, the answer for sin is self-congratulation. The reason these things are so easy to fall into is because they're so appealing. We really want to be able to fix our sin ourselves. We do not want to ask for someone without us to help us in our battle against sin. This is the human condition. Why don't we repent? Because we don't think that we need to. And because if we do, we think that we've got this. But here's the good news. God has known all along that we struggle to repent. God knows that without his help, we are unable to see the truth about ourselves, our need for his mercy, much less come to him in true repentance. This is why God is so active throughout the Old Testament. God sent Noah, he sent Abraham, he sent Moses, he sent the judges, the kings, the prophets, all repeatedly calling his people back to him, knowing that they wouldn't do so themselves. This is why God gave David this wisdom in the secret heart, convicting him and granting him true repentance in this beautiful prayer, which we're reading today and asking for God to speak to us through. Right? And even in the words of this psalm, we see that what God was preparing to do. David knew that because of his sins, God is, verse 4, justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. David knew that God must hide his face from sin, blotting out iniquities. He knew that God would have been justified in casting him out of his presence and in withholding his spirit from him. He knew that he needed a newly created heart and a renewed spirit within him. 
the prophets hundreds of years after David writes Psalm 51 pick up on many of these words in describing what God was getting ready to do. Isaiah described a suffering servant who would come and bear the iniquities of many, be cut off from the land of the living. Jeremiah described a coming day when sin would be remembered no more, when God would give his people new hearts to know him. Ezekiel described the day when God would give us new hearts and put a new spirit within us, taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. The prophets looked forward to this day, and sure enough, hundreds of years later, when the fullness of time had come, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ arrived, fulfilling the words of the prophets, prophets and meeting every line, meeting every need that David referred to in this psalm. Christ lived the perfect life that none of us could live. Right? And then he died on that cross, and he took God's just judgment for us upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. Christ became our sin and was blotted out for our sake as God the Father turned his face away from his son. Jesus was cast out of God's presence, separated from God so that we wouldn't have to be. Jesus' body was broken so that we might hear joy and gladness. Jesus' prayer for deliverance was left unanswered so that our prayers for deliverance could be forevermore. And now it's Jesus' blood poured out which cleanses us and washes us of our sin, making us acceptable in God's sight. And it's the Holy Spirit who sent Jesus, who Jesus sent from heaven into the hearts of his people, who gives light and life to the church that applies the finished work of Christ to each and every man, woman, and child who turns to God in repentance. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that God has truly renewed a right spirit within us. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul can truly say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Truly, God has made a way for true repentance. It is through his word, and it is reaped by his spirit. In this series, we're asking God for just that. We're asking God for true repentance because we're asking him for revival. As I wrap up, let me say just a couple of things. First, remember that brokenness is the key, uh, is the key to the gospel. Brokenness is the key to the gospel. As a human being, telling yourself that you can do this, with a culture that's cheering you on louder than it ever has, remember that brokenness is the key to the gospel. Remember David's words in verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. God is not looking for the finest of our sacrifices. God is not looking for our best efforts. The best we have to offer God are but dirty rags, filthy rags in his sight. No, the only sacrifices that we can bring to God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a confessing heart, bringing only our need to the, to the table. As Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Repentance is a lifelong process of cultivating this brokenness, this poverty of spirit. So don't run from this brokenness. Lean in, because in the broken place is where you find the cross of Christ and life and joy and gladness that comes with it. Second thing I want to leave us with is this. Let us never confuse accepting that you're a sinner with accepting your sins. It's one thing to accept the fact that I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. This is incredibly important. But it's a whole other thing to start accepting specific sins, saying, you know, I'm a, I know I'm a sinner, so I guess I'm just going to do this every once in a while. 
Never confuse those two things. Christ invites you never to accept your sins. And with God's help, you are no longer a slave to any particular sin. According to the Apostle Paul, you have died to your sins. So how can we who have died to sin live in sin any longer? You are no longer controlled by it. You can always, with God's help, say no to your sin. It's clear that this is a lifelong process. Right? We've received the power to choose, and because we still wrestle with sin, repentance is necessary as a process of growing stronger and stronger in our battle against sin. And every prayer of confession and repentance makes us stronger and stronger, makes us less and less likely to sin because we get more and more hateful toward our sin. While we will never reach perfection in our fight against sin on this side of Christ's return, we must never stop fighting. Do not confuse accepting that you're a sinner with accepting your sins. Third thing is, is this. You can't do this alone. <laughs> we can't do this alone. Um, we weren't created to live our spiritual lives out in isolation. Um, not only did God give us himself in forgiveness, but he also gave us one another. Um, this, is what we, this is why we're gathered here in this room uh, rather than sitting watching video streams. This is why we gather in neighborhood parishes so that we can grow. One of the pictures that God gives for his people Adopted sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, is the family of God. And families deal with family issues. Dealing with your sin is always a family issue. Right? Satan would love for us to think otherwise. But it is always a family issue. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person holds great power as it is working. Know this. There is no one in this room who has committed a sin too grave so as to place yourself outside of the opportunity to repent. Right? There is no one in this room who has committed a sin so grave that it cannot be confessed, prayed for, and experienced restoration from. Right? If you are a sinner and you have sins that you need to confess, you're in good company because that's true of all of us. First John 1 says, if anyone says he has no sin, uh, he, he is foolish, and he makes Christ into a liar. Right? If you're at a loss for how to start this process, then I guess as a specific first step, I know it can be scary, but grab a trusted brother or sister and confess. Right? There's all kinds of resources for what the confession relationship can look like, what the process of confession and repentance looks like, but all these resources aside, it can be as simple as James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray. Confess your sins specifically, boldly, with hope, and ask for your brothers and sisters to pray for you. If you need to, use Psalm 51 as a guide. In this way, as we grow as people who confess, we will put our trust in God's love and mercy on display for one another and for a watching world around us who desperately need a loving and merciful God. Finally, if we're to lead a revival, we must first lead in repentance. There is no revival without repentance. If we're not leading in, re in repentance, then what are we leading people towards? I thank God that he's work working here at Sojourn, that this conversation is happening, that we're going through this series. It really feels like God is present with us in a particular and unique way right now, and I couldn't be more thrilled, couldn't be more excited for what God is getting ready to do. I thank him for Psalm 51, right, for the, for the fact that we have this prayer to, to read through, to lead us through what it looks like to confess. And I pray that one day soon, you and I, will wake up one morning and realize, man, believers here have an unusual honesty in confessing sins, and as a result, there is great joy. As a result, there is great joy. Let us dive into this grace of repentance and ask God to teach us how to do this well so that, that as we experience this joy of salvation, 
right? We might teach sinners the ways of God and watch as he brings new brothers and sisters into his family. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. God, only you can do revival. Individually, communally, in our city, only you can bring about revival, but you won't do this without us, and so we're praying. You told us that we do not have because we do not ask, and so, Lord, we're asking, teach us how to repent. Teach us um, how to hoist the sails so that we can lean into what you're doing in our midst and in our world. Help us to fall on our knees in honest, hopeful, desperate repentance and experience restored joy and salvation in Christ alone. Wash us with the blood of Christ so that when we sing that hymn together, nothing but the blood, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we could sing those words and remember why we are here. Remember what you have done for us and remember who we truly are. And let that bring us great joy. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for each other. Help us to take Psalm 51 and use it to teach us how to repent, Lord. And would you bring revival? Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.